Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB Archives. Welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast that asks what yesterday's books have to tell us about today and even tomorrow. This is your familiar host, John Plotz, and it's an unbelievable and slightly terrifying honor to sit today across from the award-winning and brilliant writer Zadie Smith in the familiar RTB cocoon at the heart of the Brandeis Library, swaddled in our usual sleeper-like foam nodules. So telling you everything about Zadie Smith's fiction that I love, from White Teeth in 2000, followed by Autograph Man, On Beauty, NW, Swing Time, and a new one on the way, would mean wasting way too much of her precious time. But I will just say quickly that her work is uh, a remarkable and inspiring convergence of acuity and generosity. That is, she notices the quirks and even the dark places of her characters, but does so in a way that allows the reasons, the rationales, and sometimes the rationalizations behind those quirks also to emerge into view. That helps explain, I think, why her nonfiction as well is so acute, a guide and inspiration, not just to readers of fiction, but also to her fellow novelists. Okay, uh, well, so Zadie Smith, welcome to Brandeis. It's great to have you. Thank you. Um, I hope the weird purple foam nodules are not too off-putting. It's all good. Okay, good. It's not that (laughs) coffin-like. Can I just start, it's a sort of general question, but asking you about your own relationship to your books once you're done writing them? So sort of, you know, do you have favorites among them? Can you stand them? Can you go back and read them? Or do you just think about what you would have done differently? How, how, how does it feel? Oh, God. <laughs> you're allowed to say um, pass, by the no, way. No, no, it's a good question. Like, yeah. I, I don't, I, um, I, I, could, I don't know. I know so many writers, and actually I should ask more often how they feel, because I don't think my feeling is unusual, but whenever I express it, people seem to be surprised. I mean, I never, I don't read them, that's for sure, ever. Ever? Wow. Ever. Yeah. Sometimes an essay. Yeah. Because essays are, you know, I can feel proud of an essay. It's short and and also, you know, you have the possibility of, of making your argument and succeeding in making your argument. Yeah. Whereas a novel, this is not possible. It's yeah. not an argument and success is debatable at every level. So... Yeah. I think some of the shorter, I, I sometimes read The Embassy of Cambodia. I mean, I mean, sometimes oh, yeah. like maybe once every three years or yeah. since it's been written. Yeah. Again, probably because it's short and I can tolerate yeah. the experience, um, but not the novels. And, wait, why that one story? That's really interesting. I'm about I, to teach I, that. Actually, I so. think it's good, yeah. which is yeah. 
<laughs> Which is but that's true of your other things also for me <laughs> yeah i think it's good and um you know it doesn't annoy me i suppose and with sewing time i've had to go back to it because i meant to be adapting it and mm. it, it really is uh not not fun for me to do that at all it's just not fun um i i, I want i always want to move forward but I, I don't have any bad feelings about the books particularly i just don't yeah i don't have any i don't have any feelings about them yeah. Okay. Well, so that kind of kills my second question because I was going to ask you. I don't know if you're a fan of Willa Cather. Yeah, but... uh, she's one of my American exceptions. I don't. I've tried. Yeah. I'm going to try again. Okay. I feel bad. All oh, right. I feel bad. Okay. Because she went back and rewrote her third novel when she was like 60 or something. And I was going to ask you if you could ever imagine going. I mean, literally, like Song of the Lark. She just kind I of think went that's over. That's amazing. Some... Yeah. I have like I know Martin Amos a few years ago sat down and just read the whole thing over, yeah. and I remember Roth doing that as well and I think each of them maybe I'm confusing them or misremembering them. Martin definitely told me that he felt pretty good about it all and I think Roth was yeah. on you know publicly said he gave himself a score or something <laughs> neither he thought really he thought it really wasn't that bad all yeah. things considered that's quite a bold thing to do to yeah. read that many novels um and I know people like Elif Batterman the idiot as far as I know was a yeah. kind of Rewriting of something she'd written very young that she oh. came back to and reworked. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a very interesting idea too. Um, yeah. All I can say, if I was going to do something with the novels, it would be re- rewriting them. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would be it. If I was going really? to do something with them, you yeah. wouldn't read them, but you would. Read no, them. I might rewrite them exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, well, the, right. I was just thinking. There's a weird way in which uh, Jane, uh, Charlotte Bronte rewrites the Professor as Valette. Right. 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 So, yeah. I mean, the, the sad truth is more commonly that y- you're always rewriting some of the same things over and over. Yeah. I, I read a review somewhere recently of a famous novelist who will go and mention that and the critic gave him a really hard time and one of the things he pointed out were these supposed repetitions throughout, you know, fourteen books. Yeah. And every writer I know who read that was like, Well, you know, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> this is what happens. It's a kind of obsessive matter and uh I imagine it is tiresome for readers. It's also yeah. extremely tiresome for writers to yeah. circle these ideas over and over. But I guess with the writers I love, circling is some of the things, like Nabokov is a good example. Yeah. It's obsessive, really. It's the yeah. same books in some ways over and over again. Yeah. But as it happens, I like that book. Yeah. So it works for me. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> um, okay, so I have this awesome co-host. She can't be here, Elizabeth Ferry, and she's oh. an anthropologist. And one of the things she said she loves um, about your writing is the way that London almost comes across as a as like a character she says in your novels so can you talk about that does that resonate with how you think about what your novels do um i see it now like if you'd asked me when i was young if i was a particularly uh, locally focused person i would have been surprised but then i mm-hmm. see like i notice with my brothers my brothers are both working artists musicians and comedian actor and I see the mm. local obsession in in their work too. And are they Londoners? They're, they're Londoners. Obviously, yeah. we all grew up together. And yeah. they're, and it might also come from hip hop, right? My brothers were originally rappers, and yeah. And even the kids in my school who were not all rappers, obviously, but we had an an attitude about the streets. That's true. That they were ours, and that you claim them, and that it's a pride to belong to them. And I suppose some part of that is carried on in the fiction. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you think? I mean, I guess sort of taking the twist of that, is it just, I mean, your novels are set in London, but it could have been anywhere. It's just where you happen to grow up, or is there something particular about... I mean, I I 
do think, to, in my particular case, Northwest London, North London, that we yeah. have a surprising amount of novelists. Like on the corner of my road, I can see the pub Dickens used to drink in with Ainsworth, who was a uh, genuinely awful Victorian novelist who yeah, lived yeah. around the corner from me. <laughs> um, so we have a long history of, of this preoccupation with the neighbourhood. I've got Nick Hornby, of course, yeah. further up, and Julian Barnes to the left. You know, right. we're, we're all not did, did, within a mile. Do they still live in the neighbourhood? I mean, we all we would never. I would never call those the same neighbourhoods. Nick oh, right. Hornby's Highbury. Um, oh, Highbury. Yeah. yeah, and Barnes is Dartmouth Park. But I mean, to an American, these are all next door to each other. It's you know, it's a one mile radius. Yeah, a five minute. Drive. Um, yeah. But I do. I feel close to it. But I've noticed, like the book I've just finished. New York has seeped in. New York is. I even listening to myself now. I can hear. Even my accent is slipping. So things change. I guess. Uh-huh. So you have just finished a book. That's excellent. Yes, it comes out next month. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's great. What's it called? It's called Grand Union, which, mm. to your point, actually, is the yeah. name of a canal yeah. in my neighborhood. Oh, okay. Not a supermarket. In New York. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, so. You know, I already mentioned I like science fiction. So one thing I read was your J.G. Ballard essay. Yes. And, which I love. But you, you mentioned, it opens by saying that the one time you met him, or maybe the first time you met him, <laughs> yes. you were at cross purposes. And so oh, I, God, just want, yes. yeah, I want to quote you. You say, he was a man born on the inside. And I, meanwhile, born on the outside of it was all, of all, was hell bent on breaking in. Does that, yes. does that still ring true to you as a way of... Uh, I think at that moment in my life, I what would have seemed to him incredible, um, I don't know, uh, amiability or desire to fit in, it would seem conservative to him, but coming from where I came from, yeah. it's a completely different situation. You know, To him, I'm sure going to Cambridge was a kind of concession to his family and their class. Yeah. To me, my family, it was a miracle. Yeah. So it's a completely different um, place we were coming from, but that's not in any way to um, obscure the fact that Ballard had one of the greatest, most wide-ranging, most unusual imaginations of any English writer, and there's really no one I can think of to compare. Yeah. 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 So, but just to continue the thought about, like, being hell-bent on breaking in, like, looking back, so it's, it's basically, like, almost two decades now, right, after yeah. that moment. So how does that... Do you feel like, do you? I find it quite embarrassing now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the desire to be seen or recognized by English yeah. life or society. I don't mean society in the posh sense, but just literally England. Yeah. I really have, I just don't have any interest in it anymore. Yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> well, okay, I was going to wait for a while to ask this, but maybe I can, can I ask my Brexit question now? We don't oh, have to yeah. talk about it if you don't want to. But I mean, how does Brexit, does it, yeah, how does it strike you? How do you feel it? How do you experience I don't it? think, I, I really, when novelists ask these questions, I don't think we have privileged uh, informational feelings. I feel like every citizen, on either side, in fact, which is kind of spectacularly depressed yeah. and um, a little fatalistic, I feel that feeling is quite strong across the supposed divide at the moment yeah that um both sides really know now that no good will come from this yeah but some part of us wants it to come americans know that feeling too there is there's something fatalist in the body politic sometimes it's heading for an iceberg and it wants to yeah um because it wants change in any form right so it's coming 
change is now coming incredibly rapidly, in fact, in a few weeks. Yeah. Um, I, I unless it doesn't again. Unless it doesn't again. <laughs> I feel depressed about it. That for me, like for a lot of writers, I think the losses of, is of Europe itself. You know, English is a very yeah. parochial place. It's very intellectually parochial. And our one hope a lot of the time is the ideas that come from France, from Germany, from Italy, from Poland. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the lifeblood of whatever, to me, is interesting in British writing. And, and so to cut that off, cut off the possibility of us being belonging to that community, um, it's really depressing. Yeah. So did you just get back from England? Is that right? I did. And when you're, I mean, if you don't mind my asking, like the kind of world you're moving in there, do, do you only talk to Remainers or do you feel like you know people who are on both sides of the divide? Um, or? No, I'm mainly in my family group. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, uh, outside of my very intimate family, I would imagine there's quite, quite a few yeah. uh, people who wanted to get out of, of Europe or yeah. who didn't vote or who didn't right. care or, you know, it's right. so... Um, is it yeah. the kind of thing you can talk about? Like in America, I feel like you can't talk about Trump. Like if you suspect that you're on the other side of the divide with someone, you just, I just don't want to talk about it. You know, I, I can't. I think so. in the kind of heated middle class dinner parties, short, short, there would be, it could get very violent. But in my husband's family too, and their extended family, there are definitely people who voted to leave um, decisions which created, you know, job insecurity for other members of our immediate yeah, right. family. Um, so I think it generally isn't, discussed within families anymore but I, but I I don't as I say I, my instinct is that there isn't a lot of fervor in the normal British politic on either side anymore everybody's yeah. exhausted yeah well I recognize that yeah. over here too yeah um, okay back to writing so I was talking to my students about what they liked about you know what they loved and one of my students said her favorite piece by you was your essay about Joni Mitchell, which, oh, yeah. uh, which I also love. Um, but, um, but what she said, and she's 19, is that she loved the sense it conveys of like growing up and coming back to something and hearing right. it anew. It actually, what she said made me think of, I don't know if you know that Walker Percy movie, a uh, novel, The Movie Goer. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. in which the structure is yeah. like you only know something when you go back and see it right. again. So, so you're definitely, you're not nearly as old as I am, but since I'm old and I teach Middle March all the time, I think about this question of like, you know, coming to something anew and seeing yeah. it again. Is that, uh, I mean, is that, can you talk about that as a, as a thought for you? Does that affect how you think about art, how you think about your own work? Um, I mean, I, I just see, I'm still, you know, I'm in the middle of my life, but it seems to me what, what wisdom is it? That is available to older people as we get older is the acknowledgement of limits <laughs> mm-hmm. and the acceptance of them in all areas um, and so when I look I, when I look back on things I read you know sometimes for instance in Middlemarch is a good example I would have been extraordinarily judgmental of a lot of the characters yeah. in that book when I was 15 yeah. a judgment which is just not available to me, <laughs> to me anymore mm-hmm. As I pass through the various stages and find myself to be equally, yeah. you know, delusional, weak, you know, corrupt or whatever. So that that, that you read maybe with more com- compassion. And also, I mean, the thing which I notice as a critic, as a working critic, is my ability to uh, take a piece of art and destroy it and tear it up into little pieces yeah. in front of uh, the person who made it is yeah. completely gone. Yeah, I, I still hate things, but I hate them privately. Yeah, or I hate them to my husband, or I hate them at dinner. Yeah. But I don't, 
I don't sit down to write 5,000 words about hating yeah. something. I, and why is that? What's different? I, I think if I was young listening to myself now, I would say you're just weak. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see, you can't separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. But it, it partly is, again, a, a kind of compassion. You know how hard it is to make art, how easy yeah. it is to make bad art. And it doesn't seem to be anything gained for me anymore in the idea of saying, oh, and by the way, did you know that you're a terrible writer? Yeah. You know, it's so easy to be a terrible writer. I'm, I'm a terrible writer so often. And so the energy is removed, the kind of the desire to, to put things right. At the yeah. same time, I, I always have a great thrill and support when I see younger people doing that job because I do actually believe the wheat should be separated yeah. from the chair on a daily basis. It's just I can't do it anymore. Yeah. But di- but in talking about you as then a critic, I mean, and you're amazing. There just aren't that many novelists who can write, you know, the sort of appreciative and sensitive essays that you write about other art. Like talking about how you do it, you do make discriminations in your essays. It's not. I mean, you don't hate on yeah. things. I get what you're saying, but you still have to. You yeah. still sort things out. I have strong tastes and uh, I guess strong opinions, but I just, um, I'm aware of the person who made the thing, you know, I'm aware of how it feels to watch the thing you've made be utterly <laughs> destroyed. Um, I think it does make me less sharp as a critic, but but I guess I've tried to write about things that I really admire. Yeah. And what the other critical job you can do is explaining why you admire, what it is about this thing which feels worthy, rather than just saying, oh my God, this is everything, or whatever. <laughs> passes for critical yeah. <laughs> uh, praise these days you, you you need analyzing it is a kind of duty and a task you know it, it's interesting in itself yeah and good criticism to me like when i'm reading the critics i loved growing up sontag or kale or whoever mm-hmm. i i don't i never found a big difference between supposedly the art object and the criticism to me the pieces that, that sontag wrote i love most they are art i don't i don't yeah. see the difference yeah but Kale is an example of someone who remained pretty bloody Kale was minded very to the spiky. End. Yeah, yeah. She, was, she stayed spiky. But movies make you feel that way. If I was a movie uh, critic, yeah, I think I, I, I would have many yeah. violent things to say all the time. Like, uh, yeah, like going to Quentin Tarantino movies makes me feel very violent. I'm the opposite. Yeah. I adore Tarantino. You do? Really? I do. I'm sorry. I'm wow. 90s kid. Have you written about it? You, uh, like, no, I just went yeah. to see the last one last night and... Um, Loved it. You did. Yeah. The stuff I, at the end, the violence, great. I never yeah. watch the violence, so I should say. Yeah. I love yeah. Game okay. of Thrones too. I, I think if I'd put my head, down, I just I put my head down. I wait I I for my husband to say more. it's passed, and yeah, then yeah. I return. Yeah. But um, unfortunately, that's my role in our marriage. But so I, <laughs> yeah. I really wish. I no, had I, done I can't that. watch yeah, that like, stuff. But yeah. uh, as a making maker of icons, you know, I love talkies, yeah. and if you love talkies, yeah, it's been a hard decade in cinema. Yeah. At both ends, whether it's the superhero movies or the you know, punishing art house. Yeah. I want to hear words. That's and Tarantino is yeah. one of the last people who will speak in a movie. Yeah. And I, I he's an extraordinary writer of dialogue, as far uh, as I'm concerned. Uh, uh. Okay, maybe you're not going to like Buster Keaton as much as I thought. Oh, you no, I love do. Buster oh, Keaton. Oh, you do? Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. He didn't do too well with the talk. No, no. <laughs> I can take a silent movie. I just can't take a movie with words in which there are only four. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, they're not yeah. Good. No, no, I, I, yeah, the talkie is a good way of thinking about it. And they understood in the 30s, they didn't say we had silent movies and now we have audible movies. They said we had talkies. Right. You know, I mean, it makes a difference. Yeah. I like a script, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, so while we're talking about the Joni Mitchell essay, I just have to ask you, you, you have a line in it about 
having, even having, I think, an exploratory season of science fiction. You mentioned like reading Huxley. Right. Did it anything further beyond Huxley? Did, you, did science fiction ever grab you? I love speculative fiction. Um, I don't. I don't happen to love Huxley, but I. Yeah. I think I've read almost all of Le Guin and Butler, yeah. and I've read a lot of Delaney. Yeah. Uh, it just depends. I. I'll, I'll take any. Any recommendation, you know. Yeah. I don't have any. Um, can I ask what the objection word... to literary genres? Yeah. So, what does speculative mean for you then? Does that mean just, just in, or... I, it may not be the precise definition, yeah. but I, I it uh, I connect science fiction with the idea of a, a technological uh, center to the story and often space, of course. Yeah. And I don't need either of those things to right. feel like I'm in a, you know, other place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm with you on Le Guin completely. Um, She's extraordinary. She is really extraordinary. Was gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I interviewed her once, actually. Oh, Amazing. lucky you. She's so nice. Yeah. Um, d- uh, uh, what about Doris Lessing? Did you? Did she ever grab you? Um, oh, gosh. Doris Lessing is one of our North London giants. Yeah, right. And I can't explain. I'm a feminist. Ah. I grew up in the movement. Yeah. I just don't like the Golden Notebook. I'm yeah. so, I just don't like it. I can't force myself to like it. Yeah. I admire her enormously, but that book is not... And what about the the sort of smaller, weirder ones like the you know the fifth child? The or, fifth child yeah. I just got. Yeah, um, that is a great book. It is a great yeah, book, and it's a, yeah. such a funny concept. Can we give it away? I mean, I don't know if it's oh. it. yeah. I think we should give it away. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's the yeah. idea that you have this is like idealized perfect family, four children. Yeah. everything is wonderful. It's Cambridge, in fact. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. Cambridge, and nothing could go wrong. Yeah, but then they have a fifth child, and yeah. that child is yeah. evil. Basically, <laughs> which is just the most fantastic concept oh and like God, kind of so explosion of bourgeois life. Like, right. I'll just do one more thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's the one thing you shouldn't do. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's it's a great amazing. book. Yeah. And, you know, when I teach it, I don't know if this brings true to your associations with it, but it's like I taught a British fiction class where I couldn't get a rise out of my students at all. Right. And then I taught The Fifth Child and they had the most visceral reactions to it. You know, yes, they, it's very extreme. Yeah. And it's against nature somehow to demonize a child to that extent. Yeah, but exactly. It's very That's enjoyable. What really, yeah. <laughs> I think the ones who hated their little brothers really right. enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because I guess that happens a lot, right? The sibling arrives and ruins your life. Yeah. yeah. It's a common experience. Exactly. Um, can I ask you about this? Is I'm sure you talk about this piece a lot, but uh, two paths for the novel. Yes. Um, so I'm going to oversimplify, but it's about the sort of two possibilities of sort of lyrical realism and an avant-garde experimental. Mm-hmm. Can you say, basically, I just asked you, I think it came out in 2008, so, you know, 11 years on. It's not a lot, but, I mean, can you say something about how you think about that division now? Or? I think the landscape has transformed. I, I was really yeah. writing out of frustration mm. that... Um, yeah, I like that guy, Joseph O'Neill, actually. Yeah, and yeah, especially but, in yeah. England... Yeah, it's 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 different in America, but especially in England, the space for experimental writing has always been incredibly small. Yeah. And a lot of the most interesting work has come out of the art world, in fact, and certainly in music. Like we have an incredible underground hip hop scene. Underground, yeah. where, but in writing, it's I've always felt it to be quite oppressive, you know, that the kind of novel that is celebrated partly it was the structure of the prizes but it was a great emphasis on historical novels. Yeah. You know, if you go anywhere near Henry VIII, everybody's delighted. Yeah. And a lot of kind of English heritage stuff. And in yeah. fact, for me... No, like, wait, but you're not bad-mouthing Wolf Hall, are you? No, no, I okay. think... But Hilary Mantel yeah. is one of my favorite writers, yeah. but what, I guess what um, what annoyed me about that situation yeah. is that she wrote 
maybe nine or ten I extraordinarily right. beyond black or uh, wonderful yeah, and bizarre right. yeah, books yeah, yeah, totally. which no one right. in England read. Right. And then she wrote yes. about Henry VIII brilliantly. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and that's oh, right. when, you could say that about Pat yeah, Barker. That's what you have to yeah. do. Mm-hmm. And right. and when you're a younger writer watching that, yeah. that's very dispiriting. Because uh, not everybody has a book about Henry VIII in them. Yeah. Um, so uh, that kind of culture I, I found quite oppressive. Um, but actually, you know, the past 11 years in American publishing, there has certainly been a great change, not only in the variety of things that are being published, but geographically the kind of things that are being published. Mm-hmm. And then, at least in New York, presses like Archipelago and other books, we get a constant stream of writing from the African diaspora from Africa itself, from Mm -hmm. Eastern Europe. So that's all very um, enlivening, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the essay to me feels like a museum piece. So you don't have it. So you don't have another vision. There's not a different version of two paths now. It's more like multiple. No, I think that the whole thing which is you know, exciting, it's not finished this work, but exciting is that so much variety has entered the bloodstream of publishing. If you'd asked me, you know, when I was 12, to name, you know, five black writers, not American writers, but diaspora writers, female, I would have found that really hard. Not because they didn't exist, but because they weren't coming to my school, my library, my bookshop. Um, Right. Now that right. really has transformed. Yeah. And so it, the environment just feels different. And if I was 12 again now, I, I would be in a state of some excitement about the atmosphere. Well, I like the idea that you think 12-year-olds are reading novels. I hope you're right. <laughs> That's really, true. Really That's true. Right. I missed, yeah. the, missed the key point there. <laughs> um, so I was, unlike you, I was rereading White Teeth recently. And mm. I was really struck. I want to ask you about one word. You, and, you know, you do have so many amazing riffs in that book, but you, you, you have a riff on the word involved. But what do you're I? Talking about, yeah, well, just about, you're talking about people being date, dating, and so they're involved. But it, it kind of caught me, well, maybe, okay, so maybe what, this is What part of the book is it? You have to give me like, some clues. It's, okay, uh, shoot. Uh, <laughs> What's the context? I, I mean, oh, God, this is so terrible. I can't remember which Well, no can I, so that, don't worry. Okay. But I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that you that, that you play out the idea that to be involved is not just the thing that two people do. Maybe it's right. in the high school and they're trying to figure out oh, know, yeah. last man kind of stuff right. early on. But but you're interested in the way that when people get involved with someone else, they think they're on a path, but then involvement with someone actually changes things. Right, that's true. Yeah, and I was just thinking, I don't know, maybe if it rings true, you know, like in the Joni Mitchell essay, you talk about attunement as your way of describing what it right. means to like get back in touch with her or to get her. Yeah. But so I was wondering if that word involved resonates for you as a way of what you think your novels are doing. Because you're kind of watching people move through the world. Like like right. NW has four people, but yeah. then they crisscross. Yeah, pause, you're right. Yeah. Um, I guess I, in life and when I'm writing, I, I'm, I'm, try, I'm, I'm assuming that there are no strict rules for involvement. No matter how much you're encouraged to believe it, you don't know whose sensibility you will join with. Uh-huh. Of course, there are clues. Of course, if you grew up in the same environment, in the same culture, with the same politics, there is a likelihood, but it's not a guarantee. Yeah. And likewise, when you find yourself in a you know, completely new context, I, I don't feel that we should assume that there is no possibility of connection. 
yeah. of some kind of joining of sensibilities. But it's never easy. It's not pretty. Um, and it's surprising, you know. I always think of it as like an analogy yeah. with the presidency. I imagine, maybe I'm wrong, that every smart person putting aside the present, yeah. uh, every smart president, when he walks into his office, thinks, finally, mm-hmm. now I'm going to do this thing. And then what immediately happens is contingency right. everywhere. Yeah. And you have your plan, and the plan is destroyed yeah. by the serious... I mean, it's an interesting piece of Samantha Power, actually, in The New Yorker right now about mm. this, that your idea, which is basically narcissistic because it sees only your path, right. has to suddenly um, realize these multiple other yeah. Like gravity forces. wells and yeah. different things. Yeah. And everybody's life is like that. You know? yeah. You're sold in America, particularly the idea that you can just bulldoze your way yeah. into your personal and that you're supposed vision. To. And that yeah. you're supposed to, which yeah. I find a little frightening. Whereas, yeah. And that compromise is, is weak and pathetic. Yeah. Um, so then a lot of the systems that are based on compromise, like marriage, relation, having children, mm-hmm. s- seem in the culture pathetic because they're not, um, you know, they're not fundamentalist in principle. They are about an endless series of compromises. So that's the binary then? Pathetic on one side and fundamentalist on the other? Or, yeah. or dogmatic maybe, yeah. but um, yeah. learning to um, negotiate yourself with others I don't think it has to be seen as weakness, you know? I admire the, I admire the, the person who bulldozes through. I can't help yeah. it. It's in the culture to admire that person. Yeah. But God, the wreckage they create yeah. Can in you, other people's lives. Is that is it worth is it interesting to think about artists and which artists are which? I mean, whether there's like an art forms that reward you for being pathetic or for feeling I, I mean rock and roll, or, you know, or yeah. music in general is always you know, we, we stand aside and watch Yeah. The sheer, like pure ego, right? Pursue it, go along its path undistracted. Yeah. But sometimes I think, you know, you think you see something you don't really see. Like uh, Paddy Smith is a good example. Yeah, it's a kind of at least in New Yorker iconography and obsession with Patty's younger days, which is all yeah. exactly about the heart wanting what it wants and being determined. But, yeah. But Patty's actual life. It's much more complicated. That's know? what I got when I read her yeah, memoir. Yeah, the break, I mean, the children, yeah. the husband, a complex mix of like tedious domesticity and rock and roll combined. But, but not only that, it's but, complicated. But not only is she one of these, I can't remember where she's exactly from, but I know she's like from 40 miles from New York. And right. everyone she's friends with, you know, including right. Maple Club, I think, are all yes. kids who want to be New Yorkers. Yes. They're not actually already New Yorkers. Exactly. So it's, in fact, that complexity yeah. is already there. It's not, it's not easy. Yeah. And I think when you're young, you... you you see a version of the pure life, something um, something the yeah. psychiatrist writer Adam Phillips says, which I find really interesting, is why yeah. often we punish ourselves, I often do, for not being what your 17-year-old self thought you would be. Yeah. And then he says, why are you subjected to the opinions of a 17-year-old? I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why would you submit yourself to this judgment? What makes you think? That that judgment was was the correct one. Yeah, isn't there some Anne Hathaway movie in which isn't it called Thirteen Going on Thirty or something like that, where she dreams that she's a fashion editor in Vogue oh. as a thirteen-year-old, and <laughs> right. then she wakes up and she is a thirty-year-old. Right. We're like, oh god, that'd be so horrible if right. you got your thirteen-year-old dream. Right. Yeah. And if it was a way to kind of um, be in each stage of life, like in that kind of Shakespearean sense of each stage, with acceptance, that would be extraordinary. But, yeah. Um, who can do that? So this is was I was going to ask you about this Hannah Arendt line, um, which I think relates to what you just said at the beginning of your answer. You were talking about um, 
you know, the unpredictability of who you are, no matter, you know, you think that people who are sort of, you know, of your cast, of your neighborhood, right. of your group, whatever, are going to be like you, uh, are going to be your people. And so Arendt talks about the need to dis- make a distinction between what somebody is and who somebody is. Right. Does that, I mean, does that resonate that, that's, for you? Or? That's yeah. literally what I've yeah. just been writing about oh, the past right. few days. Yeah. It interests me a lot. Um, you know, part of the discourse at the moment assumes too much and at the same time, too little. It assumes that when you say my people, you can know for certain who those people are mm-hmm. by looking at them and by hearing what they have to say. Um, and I think what fiction as a kind of philosophy always assumed is that what people make manifest is not all that people are. Mm-hmm. There's a great part of human cells which are hidden, unknown to the self, mm-hmm. obscure, um, and that's the part that fiction is interested in. Yeah. Um, and the possibility also of having, having multiple peoples, multiple allegiances, multiple connections, some of which seem very unlikely. Uh, you know, when we read, I think that becomes clear. I, what I was writing about an example is, uh, I just read Olive Again, which is Elizabeth Strout's oh, yeah. second mm-hmm. Kittredge book. Yeah. What, what's so strange is that I have literally nothing in common with this old white woman from Maine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I felt with her and for her. Yeah. And something about something inside her and something inside me yeah. are in common. In some sense, she is my people. It's not visible. It's not a, an identity we could go to the ballot box with. Yeah. It's, it's not even real. It's fictional. Yeah. But it, it's an example of how your sensibility can be can surprise you, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so can I ask you about that? That what you just said—that hidden part of selves, or that surprise of the affinity—in an age of sort of the endless publicity of social mediation. I mean, you've written yes. about Facebook, and I know there's one way that just—I mean, you know, there's a kind of crotchety old person way of saying. I mean, I'm happy to say it as a crotchety old person. You know, just there's a way in which social media, social media, seem to you know, go to war with that space right. of privacy. But I imagine, like I noticed you you, um, you wrote on the back of, um, oh God, uh, Sally Rooney's book. You yeah. really like Sally Rooney. So, you know, I imagine there's a way also of thinking of, we live in a social media age, but it doesn't mean our private space has gone away. Sally Rooney is a great example because yeah. this argument is not split between old and young yeah. or technological Luddites and technological experts. If yeah. anyone thinks by using their thumb on an iPhone, moving through Instagram and Facebook, that they are technologically literate, they are insane. Yeah. Yeah. That is not what you are doing. Yeah. The difference is between people who are naive about what this technology is and people who aren't. Mm-hmm. And Sally Rooney is a Marxist and not yeah. naive about the technology. Yeah. And in the end, it isn't even about the technology because technology is not sinful. There's nothing wrong with the technology. Yeah. What's wrong with the technology is the surveillance capitalists behind the technology, yeah. the shadow techs which you are feeding all this material into. Yeah. If it were a closed loop, if, if Instagram were a kind of co-op, cooperative internet space, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't care less. That's not really what this is about. The, the idea that you are unwittingly or unknowingly or maybe not caring, that you are fueling a, an incredibly, like capitalism read in tooth and claw mm-hmm. that aims to know everything about you at all times in order to sell things back to you that is what is going on there. And the idea that it's about your, 
identity or your opinions or the data doesn't care. Mm -hmm. It doesn't care about any of that. It doesn't care what kind of person you are. Yeah. It just cares how you do it, how often you do it, yeah. in what way you do it. Yeah. That's the data that's yeah, important yeah, yeah. to it. Yeah. So I don't let let the record show that Zadie Smith is making iPhone like <laughs> I'm making iPhone symbols. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't the, the argument as it was six years ago where we were trying to pretend that it was about, you know, Internet versus old yeah. novelists or people like Jonathan yeah. Franzen or me. Everybody yeah. has to grow up and work out what we are actually doing online. Yeah. That's what interests me. The, the arguments about social media are kind of uh, that's such a small corner yeah. of one of the most oppressive acts of, you know, yeah. uh, capitalist capture of your lives that has ever happened in the yeah. history of humanity. So where else do you see it getting worked out besides, I mean, I agree with you about Sally Rooney, um, but are there other places you see it getting worked out in interesting ways? Are there people who are... I, I think all out? over the place, young people are beginning to ask the question, what, what is, <laughs> what am I doing every day? What am I feeding? What machine yeah. am I feeding and why? Yeah. And I think you have <laughs> to have faith in the generation who use this technology, that they will come to some of these conclusions themselves in their own way. You cannot preach to them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, small quote by you. I admire Beckett and I respect Joyce. I love Wolf. Um, That's you, fair. It, yeah. <laughs> I kind of wondered where Ian e. Forster fit in there, too, because I feel like, I mean, I know you've explicitly acknowledged your death yes. Forster, but I feel Forster a lot. I used to be very embarrassed of liking Forster, and then I yeah. was noticing um, this extraordinary play that's coming to New York, The Inheritance, by a, a gay Puerto Rican oh, yeah, it's like a of New Yorker. Morris, right? I think his name is Matthew Lopez. Yeah. I may have got that wrong. Yeah. Um, who one day picked up uh, Howard's End and did this extraordinary thing we were just oh, yeah, talking Howard's about. End, sorry. Right, right, that yeah, there's yeah. no yep. obvious connection between a Puerto Rican gay New Yorker in the early 90s and yeah. Forster not really Forster's sexuality was completely you know hidden for yeah. almost the entirety of his career yeah. but there was a connection of sensibilities yeah and that's the same book that I used to write on beauty yeah and it kind of it I don't retrospectively gave me heart that I that I wasn't crazy yeah <laughs> that sometimes you can reach across all these obvious gaps as me and Forster have literally nothing in common yeah um but something in his sensibility spoke to me. And there is something very radical in Howard's End about human relations, about our ability to connect with each other, which is always bastardized in that phrase, only connect, which makes it sound much more boring yeah. than it is. Um, but anyway, this Mr. Lopez has managed to make a seven and a half hour play. Oh, my God. Yeah. A seven and a half yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It comes in parts. I think you have to sit oh there all day. Yeah. And, I, and it's all uh, everybody in it is a gay man in New York. It's yeah. about uh, the history of gay life in New York in the 80s and 90s yeah. and noughties, and I can't wait to see it. It's yeah. extraordinary that, that somebody else has had the same relationship or yeah. some variety of relationship with that book. I feel like for him from very early on, like from Where Angels Fear to Tread, he's so incredibly good at how people... Well, it's what you were talking about with um, within our lives, right? right? I mean, it's that sense that you don't actually have that good a sense of what's inside you. Like no. You need to be around other people in order to find it. But what you're showing people on the surface doesn't... It's almost always a lie. Yeah, exactly. At every level. And um, yeah. and that, that's the bit which I find when people preach to younger people about Instagram and the rest of it. Of course, it's all lies, but yeah. so is everything else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a different way of manifesting that lie, but yeah. people lie a lot all the time about yeah. themselves. And 
but the, the thing the person they lie to most or often, which is what Forster understood, is themselves. Yeah. And it is possible to become very old and have lived very, very little truth. Yeah. And that, that was Forster's terror. And that's what his books are about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I do think that's one of the reasons I love the question of who in, in Hannah Arendt. I feel like it comes up again and again. And she never thinks that there's something inside. Like if you got to the very middle, it would just be empty. It's the only who is what comes out in the presence of other people, but it's not a predictable, like that coming out. I, I, I think she's right. I don't, yeah. I mean, all you can do is the experiment on yourself and, and your understanding of other people. I don't, I, I don't, I don't think people have a, a core. At the same time, I do think that they're sacred. So that's the same thing as mm. saying they have souls because mm. once they're lost to you, they cannot be replaced in any form. So I, I do believe in, in the s- sacredness of each individual person. But at the same time, I believe them to be so changeable inside that even if there is a core, there's not really much point in theorizing about it because you'll never, you'll never find it. Yeah, you'll never get there Or never be sure of it. Yeah. 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 So can I ask you about, about other kinds of artwork? I mean, you've already talked about this a little bit, but I mean, you, you, okay. So, you know, there's a quote, actually, I think from, from the Joni Mitchell essay also, you talk about the fact that you can, you can choose whose child you want to be, and for you, it's the novel. Yeah. But you obviously have this deep relationship to other artworks, other forms of art. So how do you um, think about that? I've been thinking a lot, obviously, because I'm middle-aged and having a midlife crisis, about music. <laughs> You're too young to have a uh, midlife crisis. No, it's crisis. coming. I, I come from music. I, 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 th- I think what I've realized is that, um, you know, in the dynamic of my family, because there was such... There were some really great musicians of, of like really world class singers and musicians. Like my uncle's an incredible bass player, mm. um, and my brothers were music was their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Didn't that exclude you from it? I no? think everybody decided yeah. for me that you that music will not be your thing. <laughs> I would sing, and and my family would always like, oh, stop, you know, yeah. or, or you're overdoing it, or they'd accuse me of Mariah Carey, like messing with all the. <laughs> overdoing every note and all the rest of it. Uh-huh. And it's taken me a while as an adult to realize that, um, first of all, so I, I guess I had it in my mind that unless you can sing like Stevie Wonder, you have no right being a singer. That's really what I believed as a yeah. child. Yeah. That there is only excellence. There's only Aretha Franklin. There's only Stevie Wonder. There's only Mary J. Blige. And there is everybody else should not enter the arena. Yeah. I, I felt very strict about that. Yeah. And, and with writing, I didn't feel that. I felt yeah. like there was room for amateurs for people who are not huh. Tolstoy or not. So that's, yeah. I came into writing with that sense that I, I'm not going to be whoever, but but I'll contribute. Whereas with music, I felt that there's no such thing as a contribution. <laughs> there is only genius. And so as an adult now with my children, playing music for fun, mm-hmm. singing with them, playing with them, I'm remembering, oh yeah, it doesn't, this is just a beautiful thing to do. Like, I don't yeah. know why I decided, kind of cast it from my life, as something that should never, you know, darken my door again. I, I love music. I still love it. So so when I'm writing about it, it's really like a coming home to something that I, you know, had dr- maybe secret dreams I would do and, and I turned from early. I suppose pe- lots of people have something like that. You just yeah. kind of turn your back on. Yeah. Well, that was actually going to be my next question, which is sort of if you had not become a writer, what would have happened? Um, so... 
I mean, <laughs> I, I see, sometimes I sing on, I've sung on stage a few times. In fact, yeah. I'm singing in New York oh, wow. at the Carlisle next week. My God. Wow. I sing, but I don't, every time I do it, it's a kind of test case. And the same lesson comes back, which is I cannot perform. <laughs> so I could never have been a singer. Yeah. It's just not in me to, uh, I just can't do it. I find it too exposing and incredibly embarrassing. And I have no uh, charisma when I sing. I just, I just stand there and do it. And then I go home again. Yeah. So it was never, <laughs> never an option for me. But, but I enjoy it more. And I love, you know, my, my, one of my brothers has uh, released albums and does a lot of music. And I, I just love wa watching him do that. I, I would be his stagehand. That would be a good job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the name of the podcast is Recall This Book. So we kind of like at, towards the end of the interview to ask this question, which is basically about recallable books. So in other words, it, if there's a book you can think of that you love, that you feel like has been neglected, like something that got kicked to the, you know, kicked onto the trash can of history and it kicked onto the ash heap of history and shouldn't have been. Oh, gosh, I, I think I have quite boring taste. I don't, I think <laughs> most things I know, people know. Um, I think, well, there's a book I teach every year, which I know is out of print because I've had to start to photocopy it and give yeah. out, give out photocopy yeah. versions of it, um, which is called The Bathroom, which I think is actually mentioned huh. in, in um, that essay uh, to huh. pass for the novel. Yeah. Um, but it's by Toussaint, who's Belgian, yeah. Um, who's a kind of 80s, uh, I don't know, kind of horrible, experimental kind of fright in France, they thought at first. Um, but it's a really fantastic book. And it seems quite tame now. But um, when I first read it, wow. I was quite shocked by it. From Coming from a kind of British realist tradition, it really surprised me. And it's a great book. That sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I had a, one sort of final question, which is, it's sort of a thought, I mean, it kind of comes out of swing time, kind of out of white teeth, but can you talk about the ways that you double characters up in your novels or play them off against one, one another? I mean, you know, there are twins in white teeth. Yes, but, which is awful. Yeah, yeah it's, um, <laughs> it must be subconscious. I, I promise I won't do it again. I don't mean to. I don't mean to, but obviously, yeah. it. you know, I think, I was thinking about it recently, that fundamentally, it's some kind of... Uh, like Hegelian structure in my mind, <laughs> which is so depressing. But that I think a lot of British literature has that structure. You know, it yeah. believes in thesis, antithesis, synthesis. It, it's, the novels are constructed that way. Yeah, and you get it off. Wolf Austin. has it. Wolf, is Wolf all has it. Yeah. it. It runs straight. It's a kind of. Yeah. It's like an intellectual tradition that runs through yeah. English writing, and I don't believe in it consciously. I don't. I. I'm not a Hegelian. Yeah. I don't know why I write fiction that way. I would much rather be. <laughs> Like the child of Kierkegaard, I don't, I don't, I don't. <laughs> well, but Kierkegaard's all about dialectic. Though. I, I mean, know, but he doesn't believe that it resolves itself um, right. positively. He thinks it resolves itself in, in hypocrisy yeah. and denial, well, which is well, much more what I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah but speaking of which, I was actually going to say Jane Austen is an example of someone who consciously puts it on the table, but it's such artifice, right? In other words, such the sister artifice. plots. Or yes. The, yeah. But she, it's. I mean, Austen is part of the problem. I love Austen, but yeah, you know, she, she's got so much invested in order. I see. And, right. in, and in people yeah, yeah. in life being ordered. Right. And so much of life is invisible to her. I mean, so much like sex, addiction, yeah. wildness, like her and Janae. I mean, could, would they have a thing to say to each other? She lives <laughs> in a different universe, but, but the, the world is not 
organized like an Austin novel. Yeah. Be but, very nice if it was, but yeah. it isn't. But so that was kind of my question about this is a, I don't know how to ask this question well, but like the twinning principle could be right. So you're saying it's a thing as a writer, you do it. You're not even necessarily where you're doing yeah. it, but you do do it. But but isn't it something that happens in life as well? In other words, we all have our twins yes. in a life. So that's that, it. And yeah. and I think for I mean, a hundred PhDs written on the subject, I'm sure. But for yeah. immigrants, obviously, right. and the children of immigrants, there is a, a shadow life. There is the possibility right. of what if my mother had never left Jamaica? What if yeah. I lived in Jamaica? What if I hadn't had to be? Oh, you know, for all black people, to be honest, there's a ancient shadow life of what if I'd never left Africa? Yeah. Which for me is a persistent thought. Like whenever I'm in West Africa, I, I think about it. Like huh. what would it be like not to have been ripped from this place, put into these strange contexts and have to somehow synthesize these contexts over hundreds of years? What would it have been like to have been left alone? So all of those. Oh, so that's kind of an undertext for swing time. Yeah, right swing now. time is really yeah. about the dream of what, what yeah. if it all had never happened. Um, and I found like, in the art world, I have a friend, um, Toy Nojitola, who writes, paints these incredible portraits of, um, you know, beautiful, wealthy uh, West African people in extraordinary imagined scenarios. And part of, it's not the only part of her work, but part of the concept is, what if none of that wealth had dispersed? Yeah. What if it had all been retained? Wow. What if our kingdoms stayed? You yeah. know, what if Igbo and Yoruba were not just, you wow. know, pe- things that we claim proudly at a distance in New York and of course belong to actual uh, African people at the yeah. moment but were also wealthy unbroken kingdoms yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. which had wow. never had this terrible disruption at the center of them so seeing that painted was really yeah. a I'm kind sorry, of can you say her name again I'm going to mispronounce it okay. she's going to kill me <laughs> uh, we'll get it right it, on the T-O-Y-I-N O-D-U-T-O-L-A okay. um, and she is a genius, I think. Um, and she's painted many other things besides that, but uh, but I did feel, looking at those paintings, a sense of fantastical homecoming. What what if we had never left, yeah. Uh, Zay, thank you so much. This is great. Are there any other questions that you think I should have asked you? Any no, other things no. you want to say? I'm all good. Thank you. Okay. Recall this book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry, and today, as always, our music comes from Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. If you liked listening to Zadie, you may be interested in checking out our recent interviews with sci-fi novelist Shishen Liu and Samuel Delaney, and my conversation with the comic novelist Steve McCauley, as well as a bonus episode that Elizabeth and I recorded, which discusses this interview and also Zadie's whole visit to Brandeis, where she addressed undergraduates and debated identity politics with some very sweet 19-year-olds. Upcoming issues include a conversation with the filmmaker Mike Lee, and uh, versions of several recent interviews, such as our conversation with Madeline Miller, have appeared as articles in our partner publication, Public Books. So check them out there. Finally, as a teeny, tiny, teeny nonprofit that takes no commercial money and generates no revenue, we have to ask, if you enjoyed today's show, it would be incredibly helpful to us if you forwarded to your friends and your relatives and took a minute to write a review or just to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. So on behalf of the whole, recall this book team, which includes Matthew Stratz and Claire Ogden, as well as Elizabeth Ferry. Thanks for listening.